podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Attention Social Security and SSI recipients. If you did not receive an economic impact payment for your eligible spouse or dependents, you may need to file a 2020 tax return with the IRS and claim the recovery rebate credit. Go to ssa.gov EIP to see if you need to file a tax return and if eligible for other refundable tax credits, like the child tax credit. That's ssa.gov EIP. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. Let's do this fast. Your cousin from Boston. Sam Adams Summer Ale is brewed with a hint of citrus. Perfect for a hot summer day. Like this one. And a commercial. It's Pete Cannon hours, dude. I'm out. Sam Adams Summer Ale. The Boston Beer Company, Boston, Massachusetts. Drink responsibly. <laughs> Welcome along to the club, um, to this week's club. We are doing something a little different. We have, of course, I've been looking back at all the International World Cups up until tonight. We start our reviews of the European Championships from Euro 88 onwards. But we're also going to have a look at some um, pressing football matters that went on based on the outcome of the meeting of the Premier League today. The club, of course, is brought to you by the Pittsport Football Fan App and uh, giving the fans a voice. Get your free download on the App Store and the Google Play Store. And if you've been watching their um, feed on Twitter, you'll see that they've been doing, running the virtual league and all that type of stuff while um, the lockdowns and the various lockdowns have gone on and of course England are sort of in a lockdown not really in a lockdown they can go to work if they can but not they were to stay at home but go to work if they can um, on the transport but they're not to go on the public transport they're to go on their own car um, if they can but if they can't now they should definitely be encouraged to go back to work but if they can't work from home then it's okay um, something to do with meeting people in the park and, but not more than two people. But you can meet two people on a building site, but not in a park. Um, and something else to do with being able to sunbathe. Now, you're not to take unnecessary journeys, but you can if you want to go to the beach. Unless the beach is in Wales or Scotland, because they're not going to let you in. Because they're saying that this is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and I think that's how more or less how England are, are faring at the moment. So... Um, they're also uh, not welcome in Ireland, so just just want to make that clear. You Great bunch welcome. of lads. Great bunch of lads. Great bunch. Of, if you come here, you're going to be stuck into quarantine for two weeks, um, and quarantine is known as an old bog somewhere in the middle of the country, and you have to put your head into the bog for two weeks. Um, and once you put your head into the bog and you take it back out, you'll be uh, able to be unquarantined. So with that, I'm joining me tonight, of course, I've got Pete all the way from Barcelona. Pete, how's, how's Barcelona? Good evening, all good, almost disease-free, and everybody's happy. And come here, are you able to now, can you go to work or not go to work? No. If you go to work, do you have to go to stay and work or do you stay at home? Or if you go to work, do you stay and work and not go home? Maybe this is what they're encouraging to do is go to work, don't come home and keep working. And What's this, the situation? This is the thing, no, they, it's, it's, it's on a case-by-case basis. If you work in a building site, right now you can go, or motor factors you can go, but well, like me, if you work in IT uh, and you've got remote technology, thank God I do, you can work from home. 
Um, my wife the same, um, uh, and obviously we have children, young children, so we can't send them to Gradaria, uh, as we play school, we, uh, as, as you call it. So, no, we have no option. Well, we have the, thankfully we can stay at home, but we can't stay at home, but we can't go to work, but we can. Excellent. And Keith, you're over the north side, you don't have any jobs, so what, what's different for you, Gareth? No. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, pretty true. Yeah, um, we just start to gather around on the north side while people from the south side throw bread at us that we start to scamper around and just eat up. So we've taken government advice that, you know, we won't do any unnecessary bread hunts for the foreseeable future unless we can, in which case we will, but we shouldn't. So we probably won't. But we and you don't. And so the pigeons are pissed off. So well, that's it. Everyone's annoyed. Yeah, survival of the fittest, you know, what can you do? One of the things that has confused me on this, lads, is that the idea that you can only travel X amount of kilometres, right? Because mm. in a car, yeah, on your own. Mm. I'm, all, I'm completely baffled by this one. And I know there's lots of, lots of golf anchors out there, but at the same time, right, when you look at them, if they are in a car and they're on with their golf clubs and they drive to a golf course and they play around the golf, exactly who are they endangering? Do you get me? Yeah, exactly. Depends on yeah, depends on if they're playing off scratch or not. To be honest, any use, yeah, yeah. only themselves. That's a that's a fair point. But like, I do, I can understand where people might be concerned that these rules would be floated or or, or, or abused. But that it is does, worry, like, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Keith, I think that, I think it's fair to say that in general, most people aren't thick. Right. Well, definitely, definitely in Ireland, I'll tell you definitely. I know people. There's been a lot of people out and about since things have eased up a wee bit, um, and we know we're all sort of heading into the easing of things. But I think people have, in in the main, adopted a responsible attitude when it comes to looking after your own health and that of your family, because ultimately that's what we're talking about here, right? Mm. So I think people need to be given a bit more credence when it comes to these type of things and sort of. I know we have to hold our hand, hold hands, but like when you look at it, we have been quite successful in this country. I know there's been a lot of people who've died, but in relative terms, in comparison to countries of other, of similar size to us, we've been doing quite well in terms of what it has. But again, lockdowns can't be left for in forever, so it'll be interesting to see what comes out. And that's enough for the politics tonight. Lads, the fourth thing, given, given where we are and given the talk, and it, it is relevant. So lads, um, after Boris came out with his clear and transparent message, um, <laughs> coherent, it's <laughs> clear, coherent message, which he pre-recorded. The bit that gets to me is that he pre-recorded. He's on, he's on paternity leave. Give him a break. You know what that's like. I know what that's like. Keep going. He's on paternity. Give him a break. Johnny. He's been on paternity leave for the best part of half a century at this stage. <laughs> yeah, he's about seventy. <laughs> Legend. But, with their rush to get back to normality, right, right or wrong, um, mm-hmm. which is probably wrong in the case of England, given that their case levels are still mad, right? They more or less have guaranteed that the the Premier League is to return, or they want they, they're given the green light for return, and it was officially given this morning prior to the Premier League meeting being had. And um, off the back of that, then it looks like the FA showed some balls, have stepped in and said, "Lads, null and voids off the table, and no relegations off the table." So in reality, the only option here left for the clubs is how do we play? Um, and if we don't play, who's going down? Am I right? Yeah. And but that that's it. And it's something that had to. I think they had to nearly come out. And there's been a lot of um, times that statements have come out about how things will happen, and then it'll flare up again, and talks of null and void will be will be thrown out. And look, we can have our our own interest in this. We have a dog in the fight that we want the league to go ahead. But ultimately, 
I think there's a lot of skullduggery going on by certain teams um, to gain an advantage maybe on this, and I think it is right. Or maybe not even, this, but some teams are saying it, but then you have a lot of media outlets um, or personas coming out and saying what should happen, and it's only right what does happen. It's it's good that they've come out and said, look, these are the two options we have. End of story. But they, had to. Sort of does. they had they to. Had to. I mean, we are spot on people. I mean, to. Phil made the point, I think, earlier on we were having a conversation, that it was, you know, to smoke out the bottom six, the little cartel that was developing between the, the bottom six, it was like, okay, we're going to hold the whole thing to ransom. Sorry, we have an audience. Uh, we're going to hold, hold the whole thing to ransom. Uh unless we get our own way. And I think the FA statement, first of all, that null and void is off the table. Second of all, that it will be sorted out um, on, you know, in, in, with some sort of sporting merited outcome. And third of all, that relegation is not off the table, has forced everybody's hand. And you'll see a natural split. Um, that's why I, I think there's this talk, I didn't see it, but there's talk of a vote next week. So if the six were thinking about trying to canvass anybody outside of them, forget about that. It's The vested interests gang have really boxed themselves into the corner now, to be honest. So uh, it'll have to be, it'll be sorted. You can, you'll see an 18, 18 uh, vote to two or a 17 to three, and whether we get on or the PPG rules. And But either way, in any eventuality, we'll be champions. Mm. But like, that's assuming we don't lose every single match in the start of the season. <laughs> and City win every single game. People seem to forget that. You see the brain dead gang saying, oh, nothing is certain and Liverpool could do this. Oh, yeah. Listen, six draws, um, or you know, even if we were to lose every single game, you, City would have to go on a streak that they haven't gone on in a very long time. You're talking about two Comet strikes. In the same There's a reason why 25 yeah. points ahead of them as well, you know. It's not like they, it's been a neck-and-neck neck race this season. It's it's not. We've been sauntered off into the distance. So, And we've lost two games in two seasons. Do you know what I mean? But apparently we're in danger of losing fucking six of them or something. Here's a, here's a question for you, though. Is, isn't the, the best outcome we could do here is get the games on, win our first two, right? Yeah, Just say to the lads, win the first two. Like if they if they have to cut the league at that stage, it, it takes away any idea that we can null and void the season because at that stage the champions are already decided, right? So you can't take away the champions at that point, right? Yeah. We're in such a strong position that this eliminates that. So all we need to do is essentially win our win the old, win our first two games, and then after that it's forced the league. Even if even if there's a, a massive outbreak of coronavirus in around all the players and the teams and the clubs and everything like that, then. Nothing else can be. Nothing else will stop this. I know we're yeah. taking null and void off the table. It guarantees it. But like mathemat- if we could do it mathematically and with null and void off the table, yeah. that would literally wreck yeah. everyone's head. Well, I've yeah. said this on. I've said this on multiple um, Fatback Four Daily shows. I think that that could be what they would like to do, and get everyone on an even amount of games as well. So let's say they get two games in, Liverpool have won the league, the teams that have three will have played, let's say they're three, so in the relegation they'll all be on the same amount of games played, so it takes that whole, oh, but we were a point behind with a game in hand, show you away as well, and if they have to call it then they'll call it. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the, the sort of direction they were going to go with it. I th- I, I honestly, but like for me it's, I can start to get the whole idea of, of why the government in England would love to stick it on television because it does take everyone's mind off 
the carnage that's going on in terms of the, the numbers of deaths and that's opium for the masses, of course. Oh yeah, it's like it's just it's a real look over there. Don't mind what's going on over here type of job. Like, do you know what I mean? And ultimately, like. I think the, the, the ONS put out the statistics which were showing that the mortality rate is very reduced in people under the age of 40. So it's unlikely that, it's, it's deeply unlikely, it's incredibly rare for someone under 40 in a footballer's position to actually contract a really serious version of the illness and with that to, to, to potentially um, die. So in, in reality, you can see why they're trying to get it back. And if the German league does get off the ground um, this weekend, like, the, the the pressure on the English team from a television point of view as well is, is going to be massive because they're going to want to sell the product. The knock-on impact though, lads, and I think what people have missed on this is that if they can if they fail to get the season off and there's a massive um, refund of money due back to the television companies because they failed to close out the season, like the, the knock-on impact isn't just in England. It's across Europe because the money that the TV companies are feeding into the Premier League is the one that are driving all these inflated transfer fees across Europe. And it's not just well, that, English. Well, that's over. I, I think the, the, the inflated transfer market is, is coming to an end. You're going to see teams, as we've seen already, trying to barter with players the old-fashioned way, um, you know, a complete revalue of what it is. But And also, television deals will be restructured, renegotiated. If if, if England doesn't don't get back onto even neutral grounds, it's going to be completely negotiated. Even the way it is now, um, with the kind of the interruptions, they're talking about at least a 250 to 300 million pound refund in any eventuality. So it's already a disaster, and it's 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 amazing to see how you know the the cancellation merchants and the the null and void guys they don't realise that their own club's very existence. You know, it's under pressure. I mean, they don't it, care about that fee. Well, they they will. They they. I don't know. The, the problem is, Keith. You know, we've all lived in a bubble for twenty odd years where we think football and footballers by by qualification are invincible. You know, even you look at Manchester United, for example. They're serving servicing a massive debt. Are you telling me that? they're not going to be massively affected by that. You know, it might even <laughs> go as high as that, to be quite honest with you. It's the clubs that you would think are superpowers and invincible. Nobody's immune. If you don't service a multi, multi-million, almost billion-dollar debt, you're in trouble. You know, you're in trouble. And that's just for this season. Like That's not taking into account that next season could be behind closed doors as well, or certainly a large part of it, you know, and what impact will that have if there's uh, another way? Exactly. And as Philip says, as Phil says, the, the power, the television companies have the power now, because if it's behind closed doors, and they know, television companies will know, we have the power, because we are the only show in town. They're not going to be making the huge offers that they have been making over the last few years. I mean, don't get me wrong. If we get back on television, I'd say advertising revenues, forget about the straight-up television money, the advertising revenues will go to the roof because it's going to be the most watched television in British sports history. Let's face it. You know, but then the negotiations are going to be I think any sport that, that can get up and running inside the next six weeks is going to be, the, the viewership, even without crowds, is going to be huge. Like as I said, I, I wasn't even messing. Like I turned on, I was watching ESPN last night, and um, they had Formula E sports, right? Yeah. And I swear to God, <laughs> I couldn't tell the difference between the real Formula 1, and somebody said it, uh, made a good point, he said, if there's overtaking going on in front of you, it's not the real Formula 1. Because <laughs> 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 there's proper racing. Like, like, 
And but I ended up watching it for about 25, 25 minutes. I turned it back on later that night, and they they're they're playing that American game. You know that that one where they get like a stack of beans and they throw it into a hole. Oh, oh yeah, strange, <laughs> strange. If you yeah. show you star of the sport, you watch anything lacrosse. But that I'll play that. I'll yeah. watch that. Good lord! I was also drunk at the time, so like you know when you just <laughs> yeah. start watching something like this is deadly. But the biggest thing Sky Sports have put on in the last couple of months has been a FIFA tournament that the players were doing. You know, and that's telling you where they're at as well. They're desperate to get football or some sort of sports back on. Mm. Yeah, I won't. Hopefully, we get through this. I won't miss the the. You know, I t- I'll tell you one thing: the NHS um, in the UK and the and the, the you know the Irish service, the the WHO, they won't be short of uh, of candidates to join their organisations. The amount of experts that pop up, virologists, and yeah. uh, you know, on, on Twitter, it's unbelievable. I mean, there's there's so many people out there who are driving taxis or working in IT companies. They really should be working in hospitals as virologists. They seem to be the experts. It's incredible. Yeah, but like again, you shouldn't be gauging um, people on uh, social media because that's like that's twenty percent of a population, and normally there's twenty percent of the population who like to moan and um, ha- be opinionated. The real people are out there, right? And it's like it's gas. I, I see. Like if you look at the the, the Twitter population, you look at the the Facebook population, you look at the differences between the the type of people on both and their ideas and beliefs. The Facebook one is probably closer to what ends up going on in election day than Twitter. Twitter is much <laughs> more socially aware. It's much more it's it's much more sort of um ultra political and all the type of stuff where there is like you take sides and people fend for their sides heavily, right? Mm-hmm. Um whereas Facebook is much more like the lads going, I heard this from such and such like no truth and it's just living off rumours and conjecture, mm-hmm. right? And then they mm-hmm. make the mind up based on that stuff. And that's 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 I, I call it the it's, it's the Joe Bloggs effect. Yeah. So Joe yeah. Bloggs is on is on um is on Facebook and then on Instagram you just have a mirror. Um, that's basically just anyone who just wants to look at themselves and look yeah. at people. <laughs> <laughs> Story, stories me how it's just what's he wearing, what's she eating. Like that's that's literally what what goes on. That. And on Twitter is like anyone who I want to shout the loudest. You yeah. should call it shouter. Not Piers Pier, right? Morgan. Piers Morgan. I mean, to, to be fair to him, he's, he's played an absolute blinder in this. It's about the only time he's been a proper journalist. Um, uh, given everything else he's done, though, it's not enough to be... Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. I, this, 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 the, the state England's in at the moment because of the lack of any real leadership. And you've got to... Like, I, 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 it's just mad. The whole thing is mad. But I look at this 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 Premier League restarting. To be fair, the teams, though, seem to be adamant that they want to play the games in their own stadiums. Now... I, I, go, I go back and I sort of half mentioned that the whole car thing and jest. What if the games are behind closed doors and you have a fixed amount of people attending the games in, the, in each stadium all the time? Surely they would fall into the ring of testing of, of whoever needs to be tested to allow these matches to go ahead, right? Mm. The regulations they put in place in England also say that if that members of their own household, so household doesn't necessarily mean a, a family unit. It means whoever saying like you could actually take all the footballers, yeah. put them in a hotel. Right, ring fence them, but anyone that's involved in the match day situation in in the thing, saying right, this is what you need to do. It's going to be a month. 
this is a this is where you're gonna you're gonna live here. You're gonna be tested in the morning. You're gonna be tested in the evening, and that's what like I think that's what they're planning to do in, in the MLB and in the NBA as well. Yeah. Um, and the MLB have just finished their first round of testing, and they're only a zero point seven percent positive rate. And they were saying, I think they said something mad like seventy percent of those tested though had antibodies to coronavirus, which would mean that the spread of the virus, sorry, 70% of those tested with antibodies had been completely asymptomatic. And this is where, I suppose, you hear them wanting to get into, that they want to test to see who has had it and what the levels of asymptomatic infection is, because only then do we know how much is spread through the community and what the likelihood of, how severe is this disease? Everything we're seeing, obviously, is the poor cases. It's like if you see the worst news all the time, you only imagine there's, there's bad news there. Exactly. But if you, if, if, if if you're only seeing the tip of the iceberg, you don't know how that how deep the iceberg is going and, and how dangerous this thing actually is. So then back to this, right? So when you look at this, and from a Liverpool context, it's very positive. If you're one of the bottom eight clubs, yeah, you just shit your pants because I could see why I could see why they were t- trying to get relegation taken off the table. Everyone's focused on the on the bottom six because they're the ones in the immediate danger. But there's fuck all of a point difference between ninth last to last in the, well sorry to toward to last is there anyone that's, anyone that's in that ball, is in ball. you know and you, you, you look at the you look at the table as it is and you look at the amount of uh, talking that's been going on and you can literally gauge somebody said it to me the other day you know where people are in the table by the amount of talking they're doing and what they're saying you know so I have no problem and I, I, Keith you and I had this conversation absolutely no problem with people being self interested but don't hide behind human concern that's why I was really impressed by um I don't know the Brighton chairman's name, but he came out and basically said, "Listen, we are all self-interested. Oh, we all barber. We all have it." And it, he made sense. But then the Crystal Palace chairman came out one step further and was kind of more positive, but more honest. But yeah, they obviously they they had organised, like unionised, and decided we're going to bully the Premier League and 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 call their bluff. So I'm I, I for one, I'm glad that their bluff was called. I mean. T- they were using words like integrity. That's what I would take exception to. They're to all oh, the integrity is compromised. By the way, let's take re- uh, relegation off the table. Cheat <laughs> them. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that that's it. They let. That's where they, the mask slipped all the time, and it was you know. Oh no, we're only interested in when it's safe. But if you take relegation off, then we're good to go. Yeah. You know, it doesn't make sense. I mean, as Phil said earlier on, they know that relegation relegation isn't going to affect you. Yeah. Exactly. They know the they know relegation the relegation is going. And relegation is not going to affect you either. And like to be fair, if you're if you're if you're subject to stringent testing, and obviously the testing should be paid by the clubs. But there's a bigger part of this. This this can effectively end this season, right? What I'm saying is saying you could, even if there's no games played, they can make a decision now based on weighted points per game, and yep. you can sort out who goes down and who yeah. doesn't go down, right? Um, but lads, the bigger question is, you know, and you hear like football without fans is nothing, but in reality. Football without fans is not the product that the TV deals exist for. It's not the product that the TV companies have paid billions for in terms of what's there. And ultimately, the whole Project Football, forget about Project Restart, Project Football is completely reliant on this money being circulated within the game. And I know... You know, you can say that the money should be circulated better, that it should the the, the grassroots where which is pretty much ignored. But the money that ha, the money that that's paid out in transfer fees in the Premier League, and I'm not talking about the top four teams or the top five teams, whatever it is, because they're primarily buying players, um, top end players that's there. But it's the guys from eight and nine down who buy the players from the Championship, 
and it's the teams in the championship then who buy the players from League One, and then those teams buying players from League Two and below them in, in the conference that are coming through. That's how that money filters through all the divisions. And if that money isn't there at the top end, all the debt that the championship clubs have, all the debt that the League One clubs like we've seen what's happened to big teams like Bolton and Berry, you know, mm. like this is going to be exacerbated in 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 massive amounts. Yeah. No, no fans. If you look at Liverpool, right? No fans to, is an eighty-five million pound hit, right? It's an eighty-five million pound hit on um, revenue over a season. Because that's what, it, in the last set of accounts, now, of course, the TV money comes in at something like 190 million. So it's only a third of what the TV money is. Well, it's still. But it's still, a, it's still an £85 million pound hit. It's a version of Van Dyke. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's a recent. So how many clubs can take that? You know, how many, as you said, like, probably Man City and Man United. Like Realistically, Liverpool like don't yeah, want to be blown into that. It depends. Like Philip mentioned earlier on, you know, you look above the iceberg. For example, most of these clubs, a lot of the big clubs are quoted on the stock exchange, so they won't be communicating problems because they don't want to scare the market. Not that the market's not nervous anyway. Mm. But however, my point is, if you look at um, that type of revenue, it's going, it's going to affect anybody and plus it's going to affect your your ability to service a massive massive debt you know anybody that's working in financial in the financial end of what manchester united or whoever are doing servicing that kind of debt is now panicking thinking okay how how am i going to how am i going to readjust what are we going to do what has to go i mean gary neville made the point the other day that he thinks manchester united now have caught up with us in because because of this virus so they'll be competitive i think he's got another thing coming there's a lot of transfer conversations going on but you won't see any activity nobody will make a big uh, cash injection into the transfer market because they don't know what it is yet even us with, with uh, Timo Werner, nobody wants to spend 52 million because they don't know what 52 million is, if you follow me. We, well, well, I, I don't know what that represents. When it comes to transfers, you might see players that were quoted at a figure, all of a sudden that figure is coming down. I think it brings transfer fees way back in line. Now, I could be wrong on that, but... No, you're not, because it's a market. I like think that will be business, but no one, who's, what club is going to rush out to spend 80 million on someone? There has to be a benchmark. Somebody, everybody is waiting on somebody else to set the benchmark. It's like, for example, the Borsig, when Paul Pogba was, was sold to Manchester United, that set a benchmark. Well, not just that transfer, but his subsequent poor performance set a, a, a benchmark. Then all of a sudden, a half-decent midfielder, you wouldn't even have a conversation for anything less than 60 or 70 million. Now, if that player had have performed the way in the way he was supposed to perform, it wouldn't have had such a dramatic impact on the market. The fact that he was so poor drove the market up because the, the whole idea was then if this guy who's not that good costs 89 million, well then we want 75 million for Virgin van Dijk as a defender. We want 90 million for uh, Madison. We want, you know, it's, it's, it's gone crazy. This is going to reset things all over again. We yeah, could quite possibly do. I mean, you see even Man United, who would, you would expect would be relatively bulletproof from the likes of this. And whether it's true or not, but they're having to take a step back from the likes of Jaden Sancho, who they thought they had wrapped up. Um, Jack Grealish and other players, you know. And if you they listen to it's look, they're the same as ourselves. They get linked to everyone. 2% of it is probably accurate and, and whatnot. But I do firmly believe that United are going to go balls out this summer to try and 
throw money at the problems to look for that quick fix. Now, I think they're going to have to roll back on that and they're going to have to deal with it a bit more clever because, as you know, as you know yourself, Phil, you've got the the Glazers on American football teams. That's going to be impacted. There's going to be so much, you know, they're not just, it's Man United isn't their, their baby that they're just going to throw money at. There's, there's other business interests that these people do have as well. So I can't see the big spending happening. And I think it'll come down to smart spending mm. is where you might see the difference. Nail on the head right there. I mean, you only have to look. If you want to know what's really going on in the market and what's really going on in business, look at what Tottenham Hotspur are doing. I always, you know, they do what they want to do the way it should be done. They didn't, for example, they decided to make a furlough the furlough decision early. They stuck to it. They didn't care what anyone said, and they stuck to it. Everybody's on furlough there. That's the way it is, below a certain level. And they made, they made a statement, well, if, if we believe the, the, the newspapers, that Jose Mourinho will, will be told to go and find intelligent free transfers. I think, and they, went back to, I think they went back on that decision with the money. Did they? Not the furlough, though, surely. They did, yeah. Did they? I'm, I'm after, after the the the, the Liverpool sort of rolling back and stuff like that, it was silently um, fed into the media about two or three days after from memory. But like, but mm. I just I just I just look at that, and when when I'm thinking about where football goes, to, I think it's just such a strange. It's, I, I think you touched on the key, right? Like, it, and it's it's not just a football thing. Like America is a bit madder than England. Let's be honest about it. It's it's, it's way madder, right, than, than England. I've seen they're all in, in stars now. I don't give a shit. Like they're queuing up for Mother's Day and and everything. Like <laughs> and depending depending on what state you're in will depend on whether you're going to get to see sport or not, right? But so far the NFL have been fairly um, unified in terms of their approach to this. NBA the same, um, and but they again are looking to restart somehow. Um, and they're looking to the, what's going on in Europe to try to figure out, okay, well, how do we how do we restart this? But their whole focus is, okay, there's one part about restarting, but they're trying to figure out when can we get people back on seats? Because mm-hmm. they they need the fans. They need the fans. Ultimately, sport, professional sport and professional spectator sport can only survive as a televisual product if you have an atmosphere in Right, like it's, it's 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 the draw from watching it on television that makes you say all the time, "What am I watching here? Is this good? Is is the like Jesus? Look at that atmosphere, isn't it?" And and it makes you feel part of it as well. If you are supportive of a team and you hear the fans in the ground screaming, shouting, roaring, you can imagine being there and you like in your head, even if you're sitting at home on your own, sitting there just silently, you're sort of singing along to the songs. And I know I, I slag Andy off for this. But there isn't one of us that hasn't been taken well in in big games and big minutes where you're sitting at home watching the match because you can't be at the ground. You live far away from the whole lot. But that is why you support the team. You you sing in your head, even if you're not singing out loud. In your head, you're joining in with the songs. You're feeling the rush, the adrenaline that's there. When you're annoyed, you can hear the crowd. You can hear the you can hear the pressure getting on. Like it's gonna be surreal now. I know for anyone who's played at semi pro and amateur level and all that type of stuff, we've all played with like one man and his dog watching the game, right? So, but you're used to that. And actually, the buzz there used to be when the crowd turned up for a match. Like it was, look at it, isn't this great, right? If you come from a stage where there is, it's, it's a, it's not a rehearsal. It's a stage, and the show is on when you turn out. It's gonna provide a very, very different style of sport. Like I've, I saw, I watched a bit of the UFC thing just out of curiosity to see what it looked like with, with no fans. And to be frank, 
It's awful. Yeah. It's awful. We can dress it up whatever way we want, yeah. but you're right. It's, it's, you know, without the fans. You know what I'd like in it too, and maybe I'm way off here. It's like when you're watching a, a comedy show and they have the canned laughter, yeah. and <laughs> then you're watching it without it. You know, Only Fields and Horses is a great example. You know, they'd have their episodes and they'll laugh to tell you that's a joke. And then they'll do an episode that's got no laughter in it. And yeah. you still know it's funny, but you know it's yeah. not right. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and you know there's, there's something wrong about that. And there's something off. Yeah. There's something off. You, and it's you like, play on the emotional side of it, you know, and you, it's like a roller coaster, you know what I mean? Yeah. And this is, the, this is the equation that they have to get right. So, great that they're going to finish out the season, in whatever shape or form it is. But is, like, what's the point in, outside of people not having jobs and all that type of stuff? But how long can you manage a sport where you don't have crowds? And by the looks of it, we're talking, if they follow the medical guidance and all that type of stuff, you're talking about either an effective treatment or a vaccine before you can have a crowd of 70,000, 80,000. Two, two years. Year and Possibly half, longer. Year. Yeah. Possibly longer. So what we're looking at is, 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 as you say, Phil, survival of the fittest. You know, I mean, it might push the agenda of this European Super League, which I'm completely I against, think, by I, the way. Completely I think, against. I think Pete, I think that's where we end up. If there's no effective solution to this type of thing, we end up in a European Super League conversation two, three years ahead of where we should be and a very quick decision being made because TV will still put an audience for Barcelona, Real Madrid, Liverpool, Milan, Juventus, Bayern Munich in a Super League context because they're the games people will still want to see the teams playing. Right? Do they want? Will, will people want to watch Burnley against Watford? And I mean this like, with, with the greatest wow. respect. To, to those teams but no it's like when they try to sell it as a Super Sunday you know what I mean and it's too no disrespect yeah it's Burnley and Watford or it's Brighton and Everton you know the smaller teams getting a getting a shot on the telly and it's not the same product now yeah, I think yeah. what you're looking at yeah. is you know the likes of West Ham might have their cough softened a bit at these meetings when the threat of a Super League is there and it's like well right, what we'll do is the big teams will all leave this, and then yours will be just a glorified championship. Well, you yeah, know what I mean, exactly. Well, you, you you look at what's going on in Scotland. Scottish game is going to die. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Rangers and Celtic will survive. So, you know, the 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 big guns from England go, and maybe Rangers and Celtic come down, and they 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 try to maybe pull a team from Northern Ireland or a team from the Republic or a team from from Wales and make it make it a, a British Isles League or whatever you want to call it to try and and a garner some sort of tribal spirit to, to save the whole thing. But and it's for me that's a tragedy. That will kill I mean, we grow up we grew up watching the fourth division slash Premier League. I don't want to see that go, but this is the way this is going. The strongest will survive. That's uh, of course if there's no sort of feasible way of getting fans back into grounds. And I keep coming back to when you look at the measures and stuff that they've put out there and they've tried to explain I this to me, it's probably a simplified way. But if 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 you have created a social distance in, in a stadium, so say say you reduce the, the capacity of a ground to a third of what it should be, so you take Liverpool for example, right, and say if that was sixty thousand, you could get a twenty thousand crowd into it because there's a seat gap. People can't sit in front of each other, you know, mm-hmm. like because yeah. there has to be a gap, and you gap them between so that there's a seat one side, seat another side, seat in front, and a seat behind you free. So it's almost like a chessboard board effect. Now it's not perfect, right? Yeah, like Man City. But if you can get, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they just have swathes of the ground empty. They don't have to worry about it. That's they'll just have the normal crowd. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, no, but but genuinely, if you're able to do that, right, and you're able to you're able to put it, surely there is a means there to get a crowd of at least twenty thousand into the ground. The other side, and I hate saying this again because it's just it's it seems a, a bit bad on people my age and above. But like, if you to also make make it, it, it was a it was a guy a professor in in Warwick. Um, I read a paper that he written, which is very interesting. He says it shouldn't just be done on a phase basis where it comes to industry and this type of stuff. Age should be released as well. So if we know that there's clear cohorts where the, the disease doesn't clearly affect, we should be releasing them back into normality a lot earlier. Totally so we can then study the transmission of the disease around um, bigger groups. Right? And, and totally so agree with you. You totally could theoretically... Agree have a, right. You could re- theoretically say, well, look, unfortunately, while this is there, it's not safe for people over the age of 40 to for, or over the age of 50 to come into football grounds and be in large crowds. So it's, it's really not safe because the, 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 the instance of the more serious form of the disease is bigger, right? So in this manner, you're able to say, okay, well, we can actually bring in 50% or 60% of the crowd in that instance of people under the age of 50 or under the age of 50 and fill, instead of filling 20,000 seats, this way, you get to still fill 66% of your capacity. Do you know, there's an ar- sudden, exactly. There's an argument, though, Philip, that that should be done throughout society, even in the workplace. Now, the, the reason in the UK the, the Conservatives won't do that is because it, it marginalises their, their voting um, audience. The Conservative voters are, are in that age bracket. But, but Pete, I get that, and it's, it's the same across the board. But I, I think that, that I think ultimately, when we get we get a few more months out and things start to ease up, and people aren't in the in the emergency mode and start looking at the practical mode, because you can't remain in the emergency mode. Like the, society just wouldn't be able no, to afford this exactly. To, to continue, right? You'll start seeing more and more solutions like this being tried. So it's good, as I said, it's great to see that they, they've they've come to a resolution that the season's going to get played out in some way, shape, or form. Um. As I said, let's just hope that we don't lose all our matches till the end of the season. Somehow, see you in all theirs. Imagine, imagine, right? Imagine that. <laughs> it's never. Gonna, yeah, but I thought, I've been thinking about. It, I think even I would laugh. Then I would think somebody. I think Arsene Wenger made the point a few weeks ago. He thinks Liverpool are cursed. Maybe the the end of last season, <laughs> I would say, yeah, we need Bruce Grobelar back to piss on the goalposts again, please. Thank you. Very again, much. again, again. <laughs> exactly. The players look to the captain, the captain looks to the manager, and the manager looks to you. It's time to be heard. Pitch is the new app that gives football fans the voice you deserve. Get your views sent straight to media pundits, commentators, and the club you love. From dodgy penalties to rating match performance, make your opinion count. The manager's looking for something else, and the fans agree. Download the Pitch app for free today. Be heard. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Oh, that's a cue we used to do in softball. Uh, what? It's, uh, actually Geico. Whenever someone hit a triple, we would wave our bats and yell, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. But we never got to use it because we would only hit home runs. Annoying. The phrase is from Geico because they help save people money? Geico? Yeah, they were our team sponsor. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Right, lads. Euro 88. It's great that we had a little conversation that wasn't to do with uh, um, European Championships or international football. Well, back to Euro 88. And I suppose the reason we could do it was because Euro 88 is international football tournament perfection, right? So we had the greatest World Cup ever was 1986, right? And that's... I would love to see the full 
live version of the 1970 World Cup because people talk about it. But I also think that Euro 88 is the finest European Championships tournament of them all. And it's it's the culmination of the A-team tournament. It's perfect, right? It's It doesn't go on for too long. It doesn't go on for a month. It's fast. Only the group winners go through. And you end up with, at that time, eight of the best teams. There's probably an argument on two of them being there. But eight of the best teams in Europe, the eight best teams in Europe clearly got through and served up what can only be described as a feast of football, an absolute feast of football that had drama, high drama, and just had players and superstars everywhere. So it's also, when we talked about the 1990 World Cup, it's also, we're still just at the end of that period where international teams represent the best of their domestic league. So essentially when England are playing, well, we won't say Ireland because obviously all the Irish players are coming from England this stage, right? But when, when England are playing Holland, it is the best of the Dutch league against the best of the English league. When Italy are playing Germany, it's the best of the Italian league against the best of the German league. Like it's this, la- this is the last sort of throw of the dice before football starts to become international or truly European as opposed to, to where it is at the moment. So lads, It really is, Phil, but there's a great point. Sorry for cutting across yeah, you it's a great point because if we started this whole series off on Italia 90, right, and when I was looking through some of the, the squads, a lot of these guys, and if you even look to the likes of the USSR, a lot of this USSR squad were based in the old Soviet Union at the time. But if you looked at 1990, then a few of the key players were playing in Italy or were playing well, in Europe, you know, you look, the yeah. moves based yeah. on this. Well, based on the fact that, as well, politically, you weren't allowed to leave the Soviet Union, you weren't allowed to leave any of the Eastern Bloc countries, you know, you were still at the end of the, the Cold War in 1988, so mm. it just wasn't, I mean, there was a, there were huge political reasons behind that, yeah, obviously, you know, with it being an eight-team tournament as well, there weren't that many countries in Europe, you know, when, when the Soviet Union broke up, all of a sudden all of these countries emerged, and the Eastern, when Yugoslavia broke up after the, after the war, that happened too, so Europe was, wasn't huge either, you know. That's true. Mm. It's a very good point. Yeah. I love. I loved. Uh, like uh, I and I remember this tournament. It's 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 one of those. Uh, like uh, I think we've we've talked to the pub before. What was my earliest earliest Liverpool memory? It goes back to probably eighty three, eighty four. As a, as like really a, just sort of known who your team was and who you support. But eighty six eighty six World Cup was sort of the first time that I remember watching a tournament, a proper tournament, like an international tournament. And 88 changes it all because for me, anyway, I'd started going to matches at that point. So in the qualifying campaign for 88, I'd been to Lansdowne Road for the Belgian match. I was there for the Scotland match and I was there for to watch us beat Bulgaria. Right? So this is, this is I'm a 10-year-old child at this stage, right? So it's like, this is where you really get to know your players, you get to see these, and it was, I remember going to see these, because I was going to League of Ireland games as well, I used to, go down, used to be brought down to Pats, because we, we live near it, but like, I remember going and seeing these international footballers, I remember like, um, who was the guy for Belgium at the time, was it was it Klassen? Jan Kielen, and Nico Klassen. Nico Klassen was, was their superstar at the time, and I swear to God, going and watching him, was like watching something that I'd never seen before in my life, I was forced to be able to see Liam Brady play at, at, before he, he retires from football, like, but there's, there's something magical going on in this Ireland team. There's something magical going on at this point in time in, in Ireland from a football context, which hadn't happened before. We got in close to our own hand in 84 to, to, to the European Championships and again in 86. But this is Jack Charlton has taken over and this is his run and the game's just a qualification for a fourth tournament. But going back to like lads, we're talking about um, at the time just 
like it's hard for me to to to, to explain, but I remember quite clearly. Pete, you might remember back in in eighty eight because me and you lived around the corner from each other, so mm. you, you would have had a shared experience. But that June, that June of that tournament was spectacular. You know, mm. if we are thinking about lockdown at the moment and you think yeah. about the weather we've had over the last few weeks, it was like that except warmer again, right? Yeah. You have a huge, a bit, just like in England, but probably even more so, more like Northern England. Ireland had a massive unemployment problem in the 80s, right? And, and particularly towards the end of the late, towards the end of the 80s. Like, there is no, there isn't a boom time, there isn't the Celtic Tiger. Like, if you got, if anyone goes back and looks at old pictures of, 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 of Dublin, like, there's, it's more reminiscent of areas of the Lebanon and even Israel at the moment than it is of a European, a Western European country. Like make, make no doubt. Make, you're absolutely right. It was like a third world country, to be quite honest with you. And yeah. then we, we survived yeah. off the good graces of our neighbours, you know, to be honest. That's yeah. how it was. So I remember, but I remember seeing things happen then that I'd never seen in my life. So obviously most people had televisions and, and stuff like that. But I remember my dad that day getting... For your England game, I won't lie, right? So it's the first, I think it was there at the first match of the of the group stage in, in, in Group 2. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in it, right? It's the 12th of June. It's a half three kickoff in Germany. I think, is that half two? Or is it the same? It could be the same time. No, in, they're in an hour. It's only an hour in it in Germany. It's an hour, yeah, yeah. So I remember I'm somehow getting the television. And this isn't like the aren't the flat screens that we have nowadays, right? So this is a joint tube yoke, right? <laughs> Normandy, Ferguson. <laughs> no, that, well, no, it was a Sony, right? But I mean, <laughs> it was this joint yoke, right, that took two of them to lift it out of the front room and bring it out to perch it precariously on, on like two chairs, right? Because there was like there was no like, this is not garden furniture and an Aldi type of stuff. Like people's back gardens were grass with a clothesline and an oil tanker for the heating, and that was it, right? There was a shed down the back. And I'll never forget to this day, the television, there was, um, the extension lead was like something you'd see in Faulty Towers. Like, it was running from one part of the house out to the back garden, across an oil tank, and down the far side. And they had a wire hanger sticking out of the back of the, you know, where the aerial part of the television is, because it's like, <laughs> there's no, it's, 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 it's genuine analogue. I remember them spending 15 minutes trying to get the reception right for um, the match, right? So. With that, like you're a kid and you're just watching this. I'm 11, so you're, you're conscious at this at this stage of life. You're fully conscious of what's going on around you. So the the games, the, 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 there's all the chat going on. You're not paying much. There seems to be lots of noise around the area. I know Pete, we would have played this match about 50 times in, on, on the football pitch in Madigan loads oh, of times yeah. down the oh, yeah. before this game even got started. But like the, the team is announced. And we're all in the back end. Uh, parent, I know, Keith, when we were talking about the 1990, you were talking about that you got the, the, the corny finger and you're sent home. But in this in this instance, right, the majority of the country, because it's too good, they don't want to be inside in pubs, are in their back gardens, right, watching this game. And um, so I sitting there and I'm sort of like, that's like, I'm quiet there. And he's sitting there, he's having a drink. And my mum's out and even my nanny is there as well. And she's watching it. And there's like there's half the family around the back garden. There's no barbecues now. So this, this is the 80s. This isn't now. This, there's no barbecues. So at best, like, your man's inside with the cooker going, making fish fingers and all different types of things for us to eat outside because that's how, how far in the food was at that stage. <laughs> but the national anthem started playing, and to this day, I'll never forget it because all of a sudden, across Dublin, well, across Dublin anyway, everyone started singing along. And because everyone's out in their back gardens, it was like this communal thing. It was like that moment, this bizarre moment, 
where people just started singing along to the national anthem and there was a sudden, like, I remember as, as a kid at that age, sudden realisation that there is hundreds of people watching this game in outside in a country. It was pure mad and it's like as much as the game, we can talk about the game, but like, that, was the, that was the first time I really got football. Now being to Lansdowne Road to watch the qualifying games and you obviously get the passion that's in there and everything, it's, it's amazing. But this was the first moment that really brought it home to me. Having watched Liverpool win the double, go, I'm going to go out and watch the 87, 88 teams. You've had John Barnes, you've had Doug Leach, you've had Aldridge. Aldridge and Houghton are in your head, as a, are born into your head as a Liverpool fan. Aldridge is starting this game. Houghton is starting this game. You've got Ronnie Whelan, who's, who's also captain of the side. Like, you, there's such a strong Liverpool influence in this Irish team. So as, 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 a, as an Irish kid and as a Liverpool fan, this is all your dreams come home because then they're playing England. You also have on their side John Barnes and Peter Bairdsley. So like you're looking, you're you're looking at so many of of your heroes in one game. Well, well that's a great point. Like we have as many Liverpool players as them because they only had Barnes, Bairdsley, and McMahon. I think would that be right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And McMahon doesn't play in this game. No. Yeah. But I, 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 had, I had a real why I had a real problem with Jack Charlton to be honest. Well, not at this stage. I was, I was, I was too. I, I didn't understand tactics. I just knew that I wanted Ireland to win. But when you look back at this team and the, the squad, of, even the squad of players that we had, if we had had a manager who wanted to play football, we could have given any team. No, not that we didn't give teams room for the money. We could have beaten any team. We, you know, let's be honest. I think we missed a huge opportunity. <laughs> but I, think, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't necessarily agree with you at this point, Pete. These tactics that Charlton have employed has employed for Ireland has turned us from being almost to threats. We've got we, we go into this as a fifty to one shot to do to even get out of the group, right? And at this point in time, we aren't we, teams don't know how to handle us. Teams are more or less playing the same formations. It's four four two. They've got their wingers. They've got their big man, their little man in the centre. Or they have one that drops off and does does a bit. We've got Aldridge and Stapleton for us starting up front here that are going to run their legs into the ground. But like we played, the the, the one thing about at, the, at this point, it wasn't just the bomb, the aerial bombardment. The aim of this and the aim of the way we were playing was to put the ball into areas that allowed the midfielders to get up and win the second balls. And I hate saying this, but in some of the ways that Liverpool have played recently, you can see a line from that style of football because it's not about necessarily hitting a long, an aimless long ball. It's about putting the, putting the ball into areas that the t- other team have vacated and then winning the ball back high, so far high up the pitch that when you've got teams torn and they can't, they can't regroup, can't recess and can't, can't sort of address what goes on. And if you look at the goal from Houghton, that's it. it's so early and that's exactly what happens we put the ball is, is played in long I think to the right hand side Kenny Sampson is underneath or whatever it is and he loses the ball because he's left isolated in the defence because they've been playing down the left hand side up until then the ball is won back I think it's Aldous that wins the ball back from Kenny Sampson lays it back Chris Morris plays it across and somehow managed to get on the end of it and pummels a header past, past yeah you're right I think Ireland with that team that you really use that full backs in attacking situations years before it became well I won't say it became fashionable in Brazil had, had always done it but with more football but yeah you're right our our chief assist makers if you think of people like Dennis Irwin even after this period Steve Staunton Chris Morris in this tournament were always up there with the assists it was always when they when they got ahead of the halfway line you knew something was going to happen 
Mm. But don't forget, we have, we have the genius of Paul McGrath. People also forget that Paul McGrath is a centre midfielder at this point. He's not a centre back, he's a centre midfielder, and he's he's immense. He's, he's, he's does everything that Fabinho does for, for Liverpool nowadays. Just to, to start to, That's to a great comparison, actually, Phil. I never thought mm. of that. Fabinho and McGrath is an excellent comparison when McGrath yeah. made in that central midfield. Oh, he was just like, he, like when I look back at it these days and you see him playing, and I know everyone remembers his big performance in um, in in 1994 in the Joint Stadium. But my God, he was such a Rolls Royce of a footballer. It actually that nearly overshines it, doesn't it? Like it, it, so much focus gets put on put on that one game that you can't, you know, it, it was a career of it. Like I've, I can't remember seeing him having a bad game. Do you know what I mean? And or being so the stuff the chap was going through, you know, yeah, exactly. And, Without being disrespectful, like always Paul mentioned McGrath. that one game, like yeah. as if he pulled it out of his arse one day. No, that's no. all. I mean, like McGrath, the thing that people forget is that McGrath is, is, is very at the peak of his powers in terms of being a player and a, a decisive player. He's a top scorer in in in, um, in qualifying, in qualifying mm. from from midfield. I think he's two or three goals. I think he's up there with Frank Stapleton in terms of what it is. Um, and, and Stapleton's playing up top. Like Stapleton being on fire for Arsenal as well in terms of what was coming into it. Um, Liam Brady obviously missed out because of the crucial league. And Liam Brady was the man who got us here because he scored the winner against Bulgaria in Lansdowne Road in the 2-0 win over them. Um, and and misses out. At that stage, the, the, an awful lot of journalists wanted him out because he was playing for Askley in this time as being over, over the hill. Decline, like, yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, it's his goal to get us there. Like, you, know, you know, these things are, are such, and it's such a pity that someone like Liam Brady never gets to play in a, in an international tournament because he was that good as a player. But the gas thing, lads, on the flip side, you've got England. Now, we as Irish people remember this game as being a triumphant win over it, but this game has as much to do with the fact that Gary Lineker couldn't Terrible finish the French. breakfast. Terrible yeah. fashion, yeah. He battled us. Battered us. This is a battle between Packy Bonner and Gary Lineker. Like this is the only. If ever you were to watch a game where a goalkeeper takes on a centre forward, this is it. Because no matter what Lineker did that day, he couldn't get past Packy Bonner. I, I would argue that this is arguably Packy Bonner's greatest game in an Ireland jersey, right? And when when people go back and watch it, he's making saves that are miles better than than Gordon Banks' amazing save against Pele. I, I'm, I'm, I would stand up against this. The one he makes down to his bottom right. Um, from a header down by Lineker and it's outrageous that he gets himself down and across the goal that far it's just it's a phenomenal save but it's such a different style of football as well but like lads this is an England team that's come off the back of a quarter final defeat to in, in 86 Argentina. you have this is a golden generation England team as well like, and, a, and a brilliant manager you know uh, yeah. Bobby Robson let's face it you know all the smile all the nicest guy in the world was I, for me, I think pound for pound, he's the greatest ever manager. People talk about, uh, about uh, Alf Ramsey all you like, but I know he won a tournament and all that. But for me, Bobby Robson, tactically, even the way he was with players, I think I think this is the best ever manager. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I would 100% agree with you. And there's a reason why England have failed to do as well as what Robson has done. Like, if you look outside this this tournament, right, this one tournament, um, outside of this, He's to take him to a quarter final and then subsequently to a semi final. We're very unfortunate not to get to a final in 1990 off the back of what he does, um, and he goes on to have what it is. Anyway, lads, that's we. There's so much you could talk. You could just talk about this game, this one sure. game, tournament if you wanted. Like you've got this, there's so much going on. Before but we move on off it, Phil. Before we move on, you were mentioning about Bonnard against Lineker, but didn't it turn out Lineker had hepatitis B or something? Yeah, there was something mad going on. He was he wasn't right or something. So. 
because he was unusually, you know, Gary Lineker is a player that, you know, he was never the prettiest of player, but he was a classic number nine of the 80s, wasn't he? That he was a poacher and a finisher, and he just couldn't finish it this day, which was unusual if you look back at my, it. My memories of Gary Lineker was that every major tournament he went to, don't, even the one where he won the Golden Boot in 86, where he was outstanding, yeah. he always had a problem. There was always yeah, a, an injury got a trick in that. Yeah, against Poland. So he was always he was always some sort. He had a broken hand going into that World Cup. I think he had a foot problem in uh, 1990. He had hepatitis in '88. He always had some sort of problem, but still managed. He didn't have to be a supreme athlete. Lineker was the, the one of the first players I ever seen to get off that shoulder, those diagonal runs, and finish at that angle. And it was Bonner that really, as Phil says. It really just closed them down. You know, you must remember, Gary Lineker's not a big guy. Packy Bon is a giant and a very underrated goalkeeper. Difficult for Lineker that day. The other thing that should be remembered in, in this tournament in particular, right, and that's why I think it's it's probably the pinnacle of, of, of my love of international football, right? even though I think the World Cup 86 is there, but this needs to be recognised as the tournament with the greatest football and jerseys right so and that's why I want to move on because in the next game after this in, in the in the group um, Holland play the USSR because it's not it's not Russia so it's Holland it's Netherlands against the USSR um, Holland of course win this tournament so I'm not, I'm not giving away any spoilers here because this has happened over 20 years ago so it's, I think it's fair <laughs> we can figure if you haven't watched it by now yeah probably actually yeah. haven't watched it but somehow Holland lose their opener yeah yeah <laughs> so, yeah, and this again, Keith, I'll, I'll try with you on this. Like this Dutch team and Dutch squad is ridiculous in terms of the level of talent that's in it. Like you've got Dan Breuklin and go, you've got Ronald Koeman, you've got Frank Reichardt, you've got Jan Wouters, you've got Johnny Van Schip, you've Ruud Hullet, and one that for for all the younger ones out there, John Bosman. That isn't just the emplacement in Holland where they came up with the rule. This is the fellow who's going to ch- ch- change transfers um, as they go on. But also, with Van Basten, and in the opening game, Van Basten is a substitute, and you can only use two, two substitutes at this point. They haven't brought the three substitute rule in. So he doesn't get on until the 59th minute. Um, but this is going to become the Van Basten tournament, and it's also the greatest uh, Holland jersey ever seen because it matched the greatest Liverpool jersey ever seen, right? Um, there's so much going on in this game because you've got the Russian jersey, which is also pure perfection. It's white with the three stripes down the side. Um, the Ger- West Germany, the iconic West Germany with the, the flag going across it. Uh, it's like you've got the Ireland jersey, which is the greatest Ireland jersey of all time, which is the one with the whites and the, the, the stops the and the net. band yeah. that went around it. The England the jersey is... Yeah, it was the old FAI crest. The England jersey is absolutely iconic. It's the Umbra one that has the little button, the little button cor- yeah. cutaway collar um, that's on it with the, with, the, with, the, with the navy red. It's like there's just so much. Denmark, Denmark went in with their home. Oh, I absolute class. I loved about the Danes. Was this half and half one, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. No, oh, it wasn't. It was. Well, no, that was eighty six. Eighty six was that. But I love the, the the Danish players that be walking around with their sweatbands, and they were just always cool. You know, their their cool oh, long hair, their cool hummus gear, and their brilliant Patrick boots. And then obviously the Laudrup, they had the, one of the coolest players in Europe. Yeah. Well, come here. I, I want I want I want to run through this right. So anyway, um, 
Holland get beaten in the opener, right? Van Basten is nowhere to be seen. Um, he comes yeah. on the 59th minute. You've got Ruud Hullet, who's who's like, I've never seen a player like Ruud Hullet because of his hair. It was just like, Where's, what, what type of player is this? What does he do? He must be amazing if he's playing in that number 10 position. <laughs> and he was like, the genuine. As well. And he was the captain as well. He was just everything. Ruud Hullet was just amazing. Now, the only thing is though, I knew about Real Tullock because, as I said this beforehand, 1987 Screen Sport, I think it was Screen Sport or Super Sport that started showing on Cable Link back in Ireland, right? Um, it was the first of like these cable channels that we, we'd gotten. And they used to show Dutch football um, highlights every Friday or Monday it was. I can't remember the name of the guy who was the commentator, but he was a fat lad in like a Mac um, that used to appear at the start of it. But... I, this is how I found out about Marco Van Basten, Ajax, because one of my first jerseys that wasn't a Liverpool jersey, and I still have it, is an old Ajax jersey. I have it in Wexford Pete, I'll take a picture of it, I still have it, right? It's, an, it's, it's the Ajax Away jersey that I got in the soccer shop on George Street in Dublin, right? And, um, but he used to start, and the person, the, the, the opening of it involved Marco Van Basten scoring his iconic overhead goal in an Ajax jersey, and to this day, that was my moment where Marco Van Basten, look at this fella, and then of course they, they would have had um, Ruud Hullet playing for PSV at the time, and it was how I got to know a foreign league that wasn't England, because this is like the open. There was no, there wasn't the German league. There wasn't what we see on television these days, but this was the closest I've gotten to ever seeing. Like there was, it wasn't even Spanish football; it was just Dutch football. So it was either English football or Dutch football, or going to watch Pats play in the League of Ireland. So that yeah. was literally the choice. Of. But this this USSR team, because it was the Soviet Union, it was it was it was the Cold War. We're coming towards the end of the Cold War. It was all these lads that you'd never heard of, with the exception for me anyway. It was the goalkeeper. Really nice. He was yeah. there. He was he was again. They had Lev Yashin, but the Soyev to me is is the first that I can remember of the modern type goalkeepers like Van Broeklin and goal for Holland is brilliant. Um, but I just remember seeing um, the Soyev playing, and he reminded me so much of like a, an almost a, a prototype to Schmeichel. He was he was a joint of a man. He looked like a joint in goal, and the way he got himself across the goal. And I find my, I think I, I haven't gone back and watched the videos, but he may have done a form of the star jump. When he did, yeah. he's, he's another uh, ex-hockey goalkeeper, and that's where that comes from. That that's their jump. I think you're right, Phil. Definitely. If it's he not a star jump, but he was he was also brilliant at picking them out. You know, you might say a star jump and Smoykel, and you're thinking, right, he's just good at closing down. Desiev was brilliant at picking them out of the top corner as well. He was an acrobatic keeper. You know, which sounds mad that he's either one or the other. This fella was. I'd like. I'll just jump in and say I was only seven when this tournament was on, but this is the first tournament that I vividly remember from football. I remember the buzz of '86, but I was only five, and I don't have any memories. But I remember this tournament, and I had books and magazines and all that, and I had a, read a thing about SAF before it. So I was sort of on this fella like a hot snot, and this guy, this guy is absolute mustard. Like we'll talk about this tournament, right? about the quality of teams in this. And people will be like, Russia, Denmark, some of the players that played in, like this Russian team, right? You're talking about Dastoyev and Gold, the best keeper in the world, without doubt, at the yeah. time, yeah. by a mile. They had Igor Belenov up front. Mm. Igor Belenov was the Ballon d'Or winner in 1986. Mm. So he's no sham. This is only 88. So you've got yeah. the, the Ballon d'Or winner. You've got um, Elenikev. Mm. Vasily Ratz. You have Elenikev playing for um, Minsk. And he goes to Juventus the year that. Like, they had a lot of good, good European players that you'll look back on now and be like, oh no, they were sure. These were a good, good team. The USSR were a cracking team back then. Uh, 
And I think a very, very young Alexei Mikhailichenko, who I think ended up in maybe our Rangers and, and a few yeah, decent clubs. Yeah, Mikhailichenko played for. And the, the the great thing, I mean, we look. You look at the na- the team sheet of Russia. There's there's great Georgians there. There's great well, this Soviet Union. So there's great Russians. There's great Georgians. There's great Ukrainians. I mean, all yeah. of those teams. Belarusians. Yeah, exactly. All those teams can hold their own, you know, individually. So imagine how how decent you would have had to have been to get into this fight. Well, it's the, but the, this is the thing with these guys. They, they are like, even though we hadn't heard of most of them because they're playing in the Russian league, they appear out and they are playing, as I said, they beat Holland in the first game. And not only did they beat Holland, I remember watching that game and going, wow, that's some football team. That's a, they're amazing. Now you're looking at the Dutch team, and it's it's Rinus Mikkel's side. So that, that it's not like they're yeah. playing shy football. They're exactly. playing total football, and it's amazing the speed that they're playing at. The guy I always like when you go back and watch it, and I know it's not as fast as modern day football. But when you watched it as a kid, you were seeing football being played at a different tempo to what you're used to when you're seeing a, 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 an English league team play. And you're only getting the same type when you got to the latter stages of the European Cup because that's when you start to see these teams that could play at a quicker pace because their fitness levels now are higher. And this is when international football is the pinnacle of the game. The European Cup is a phenomenal trophy to win, but the Euros and the World Cup are the pinnacle of the game. They're the trophies that all players want to win more than anything because you, you've got reduced amount of stillness. But as the, the, what the defeat to Ireland causes the English squad to implode. And when I say it implodes, there's murder in the camp, right? There's genuinely murder in the camp. It ends up with a punch-up between Shilton and Brian Robson. Robson doesn't appear um, in another tournament again for England, and Robson is the captain. But there's Back pure... Yeah, there's, there's pure murder in that side that's going on. I think he played in 90. He was replaced by David Platt after the first game. I'm nearly sure he dislocated his shoulder, broke his shoulder in that tournament. No, he'd he done his shoulder in 86, was it? Yeah, in '86 it was. So I don't think he does. I don't think he was in that squad. Yeah, definitely not in the '90s no. squad. I'm sure he was. Anyway, oh, no, yeah, another day's so. conversation. Thought he was. Yeah. But no, go ahead. So off the back of that, then Holland go out and dismantle England. And when I say dismantle England, it's a Van Basten hat trick. Um, they, they I know Robson gets an equaliser to bring it to one all, but they, mm. literally they, they can't live. They can't live with Marco Van Basten. He starts in this game and he's just off the charts. Suddenly you've got this whole of Van Basten axis that's up there. You've got you've got the ability of Vouters and Muren in the centre of the park. You've he's got really um, yeah, and you've got Ronald Koeman who's playing as a sweeper, which allows Roy Card to push into midfield. And it's just I remember watching this, these games going. What's the, how does this team play? The, the team that he seems to be everywhere. Like for me, Frank Rijkaard was just everywhere. He was a centre back, and then he was a centre midfielder. And I'd, I'd never seen anything like this being played before. And it was just there. Oh, this is amazing. And then they couldn't break, break them down at the back. And it was just this sensational play by Marco van Basten, who I, I remember watching as a centre, seeing him play for Ajax, and all of a sudden he's thumping in goals. But he's thumping in goals against players that I see all the time they're on the big match on ITV and on, on uh, Match of the Day on BBC and it's like they're going where do these fellas hide all the time yeah. and it's a real eye opener but of course the English team have, have, have um, disintegrated and the, in the, the other game that's going on you've got Ireland playing Russia um, and this is probably the, great, the greatest heartache of, of an Irish man because Ronnie Whelan scores I, I don't think I've seen a better goal score by an Irish player ever and you won't it is you won't complete. yeah exactly it's it's a complete to describe it. The only way to describe it is that Mick McCarthy takes a throw in on the left hand side of the pitch, and he throws it all the way over to Ronnie Whelan, who stands on the right hand side of the pitch, forty five yards out. 
who bicycle kicks it from 45 yards out into the top corner against, as we were just saying, the best goalkeeper in the world at the time, right? Yeah. It's like, uh, if you're going to score a dream goal, this is this is where, how, you're, how you're scoring it. What's he doing shooting? You know, you, what's he doing shooting? Now? And if I'm right, when I watch the back a lot of times, it looks like he shins it as well. It does shin it, definitely shins it. But it's, it's a mad looking goal when you watch it back. And I don't know, maybe my eyes were playing tricks, but McCarthy was famed for his long throw, right? Yeah. And But he, he loops the ball into him, doesn't he? It's not <laughs> like he, he doesn't ping it. Is that a bullet? So it's a slow, loopy throw in, and all of a sudden, bang, Whelan hits this blade volley as we just bigged up Rain at that's why I didn't get near it. You know what I mean? Yeah, so no one's getting near it. Really was a great goal. No one's getting near it, yeah. You need a fucking stepladder. But <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it, about this, this tournament. Like, we can look at the teams. Or this Ireland team, where they were no mugs, as we said earlier. They, they had good players in there that were playing a system. The Russians were playing a system. The Dutch were playing a system. Even England. We spoke about England there. England were a bit unlucky in this tournament because... They lost Terry Butcher before it, um, and they went in with their centre-backs. I think they were a bit weak at the back. They had Tony Adams and possibly Mark Roy. Mark Roy and Tony Adams Terry were the centre-backs. Was, was Terry Butcher there? Butcher was injured. Butcher got injured before yeah. it. No um, surprise. That would have been Mark Roy, yeah. So, about, like, Mark Roy, I think, only had 10 caps. Tony Adams was younger. I think he was only starting now. I think uh, Dave Watson was in the squad. And you said something earlier, Phil, it was a good England team. I think they were sort of in the middle of a transition towards the 90 team. They'd moved, like Glenn Hoddle plays in this and doesn't play again. Dave Watson, Peter Reid. You know, they had a lot of players that were Brian Robson, as we said, we're not sure if he got Yeah, coming towards the end, like Mark Haitley wasn't playing at a, at a decent standard. He's in that squad, I think I remember. Peter Beasley, who should always be playing. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple of players coming Tony towards the end. Yeah, so the, the, the squad, Kenny Sands, yeah, Gary Stevens, the squad there that were, they were a good 80s team, but they were maybe transitioning away from their 86 team. Now, they've got rid of a lot. Terry Fennick and the likes, he was nowhere to be seen, but I don't think that was any great big loss. Des Walker hadn't made his debut at this stage. I think he was coming shortly after this, but they had got problems at the back. They had Peter Shilton um, in goal. I know you're a huge fan of his, um, Phil. So, you know, he was 38 in this tournament. Yeah. 38. The, the, the one thing I'll always say exactly the, 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 about Peter Shield and I think England faced a few penalty shootouts with him in and I don't think I've seen him get near any of the balls to my memory I mean, as good as he was in the 1970s and, and late 60s uh, to my memory of watching him as a kid I remember thinking he doesn't move very well <laughs> maybe it's just me and he didn't look very like he covered much of the goal He looked. He, I, I remember seeing in the 90 tournament the ball loop over his head which spent an eternity in the air Phil will tell you better than I, than I would but what, what are you doing with your feet you know I mean I think I think Peter Shilton cost England in a in a in a, a couple of tournaments that he shouldn't have been. I mean Maradona. The only people talk about Maradona. How on earth are you getting beaten by this one of the smallest players in the world? Even if he is using his hand, how are you getting beaten there? Yeah, you but know? it's not even like his hand was pushed out. His hand was against his head. <laughs> He's so <laughs> This is what I'm saying. No, I mean, crazy. Peter Shilton for me, you know, it's like he shrunk 
you know, from 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 his early years, he he shrunk a foot. He he just cost England dearly, in my view. The best and thing Chris I can say about Shilton is in sorry if I couldn't across you, Pete, is in this tournament he probably had one of his best jerseys. If you remember, he had yeah. like this luminous yellow and black zigzag oh. with the jersey. Yeah, and that's the only good thing I could say about Peter Shilton. But, but Chris Woods was a far superior goalkeeper. No, Phil. <sighs> Peter, it's hard to know, isn't yeah. it? Because he had an issue as well that a bit like Shilton, they both like to dive from the off their knees. Like, like a, if, if you go back and watch them, they, they always seem to go onto their knees for some reason as they dive, and it seems to limit the, the distance they go. But the, because if you look, but what's really interesting if you look at Shilton ten years previous. 78, 79. He's like the staff. He's this incredible force of nature and goal. He's just a goalkeeper that's way over the hill. And unlike David Seaman, who was able to play into his late 30s, Shilton had lost it, had completely lost it at this stage. And it's amazing that Robson stuck with him in 1990. Because if him was. was because Seaman was around, Seaman was part of the squad then in 1990, but he was probably just only. He was only Seaman got injured in 1990, didn't he? Seaman got injured and got replaced by Dave Besson. Yeah, he did. That was that's right. It was never right. going to get me. But Seaman was. But but Shilton was all going to start that. Wait, I, I don't want to move along because I, I, I don't take up. Uh, 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 even though it's only eight, eight teams, we're going through the things and things. But like, the last game here is we have the Soviet Union then repeat the feast and stick another three-one past England, and it sends England home. I think all the English players are happy to go home at, at the end of this. The press had literally torn on them. They savaged home. them, did they? Yeah. And I remember this is the foot because we got obviously we saw the English newspapers at home. I remember now. This is mad. They really hate their own team. Why would you hate their own team? Would you, they not want to support them to help them get through this type of thing? That's an 11 year old's talking. Why, why are they abusing them the way they're abusing them? This is very strange. So then we go into the last game in the group against Holland with a chance to, to qualify because we have a win and a draw under our belt. So we know that I think draw are taking us through because Holland had lost. Um, and Russia had drawn us. So I think it would have come down to a tiebreaker between ourselves and Russia had we managed to get a draw out of Holland at this point in time. Um, <coughs> uh, actually, no, I think no, they didn't didn't have they didn't have goal difference at the time. It would have been drawn a lot, as we know from the 1990 when it was who drew the short straw to go through and, and who went where. But anyway, um, we go and play Holland. And I think this is the first time we're completely outclassed by another side because I do remember this game. And we did have some decent chances. But my God, the Dutch moved the ball so quickly around the pitch. And even looking back at it now, the way they played football was just an eye-opener. For, for an 11-year-old, it was just amazing to watch what they were doing. But it was also heartbreaking because the efforts that the that the Irish team put in that day, they really worked their socks off. I remember Morris came off. He brought um, Sheedy on at some point. I think that... Did they move Paul McGrath back into the fence then at that point? I can't remember if, if that's happened. Compared to Vim when he got the goal. Look, Vim Keeft was... Two yards offside, and he scored that goal. But that's that's it. right. I remember that. But that's the whole and a mad, mad goal. And you'll never see, you'll never see a player head the ball like that. He headed it into the ground, and it spun off at a really strange angle. I, I, I've never seen it before, and I haven't seen it since. It was one of those things that happens, you know. But this is this is almost a foretelling of um, Packy Bonner's entire international tournament career for Ireland. Unbelievable saves, unbelievable performances, and then the dodgiest and scoriest of goals <laughs> yeah. end up eliminating an Irish team in a tournament. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I couldn't agree more. But it's hard not to say that in uh, oh, what's going to happen next and what's happened here is that the best team clearly won. 
ultimately in this and went through. Like Holland had to win this to come out of the group, and and they do win it, and they managed to go on um, into the knockout stages. But I remember being how, how heartbroken it was to see it because even the even the the, the I think it was only it was only John Joyce that was on the television at the time, or would have been even Angus McInally or someone like that that was just talking about football. But like the devastation was was real after the, the final whistle, um, and even across the country it was just like it was. It was really, it was just a sad, a sad, sad day. It was like people were have, after having the elation of beating England and being oh so close against Russia. It's like this is the final bit just to, to to really just to take you back down and match yourself. But the mad thing about again that's a half three kickoff. Like the games were played a half three. It's, the only game that was played in the evening time was against um, the USSR. But because yeah. it's the middle of June, it's 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 daylight. Like you know, it was daylight right the way through to to to, to um. The, the final whistle in these games. That was one of the excuses the Ger- or the English used was um, all their games were sort of early in the day and the heat, it was a, a scorcher of a summer so they were getting absolutely sapped and drained. They didn't get the luxury of a, a later kickoff like we did. But yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. Um, but on, anyway, that's, that's to ignore the other group that's going on because in the other group there happens to be uh, Italy West Germany, Spain, and Denmark, and that's a Denmark team that includes Jan Mulvey as well, um, another Liverpool player. So, despite me saying that it's all everyone's up from their own league, there is a few lads knocking about around Europe at this stage. Certainly, the, the Danish squad, yeah, yeah. The West Germany side is um, the last West Germany side to appear in in a major tournament because the reunification happens, and obviously in 1989. And by the time we get around to Euro, no, it's West Germany in 1990. It's West Germany the World Cup. It's the last West Germany side in Europe, but this get, the tournament's been held in West Germany, so this is where where the big thing was. Um, but again, that Germany side has Matthias, Ludi Voller, has um, Berthold, Jürgen Klinsmann, Rainer. is in this. Yeah, but and they're and they're all but they're quite young because Klinsmann's only 23. Um, Voller is 28. Okay, I forget who Gordon Kohler is only 22. Yeah, Matthias is 27. Lipparski is a lot of the same names. Yeah. yeah. A lot of consistency with the Germans. Yeah. There is. There is. He's got 53 caps for them, so he's played like him. But like, you look at this and you think to yourself at this point in time, home tournament, home advantage, this West German side is set up to do some damage that's in there. Then you look at the Spanish side and you've got Steve Zaretta, who happens to be 20. You're another one of your mates. Yeah, still going. You've got. <laughs> but again, it's an outrageously talented um, Spanish side. You've got uh, Butchabreno, you've got Julio Salinas, you've got Victor Munoz, you've got. Um, Manuel Sanchez, you've got. Um, um, You've got Chicky Bagheerstein. You've got Jose Camacho. Yeah, you've got like you've got a serious amount of well-known players from from playing in for both Barcelona. Yeah, exactly. Really good, really good squad. And then you look at the Italian side, and it's mad. You've got Zenga, Brazi, Bergami, Ciro Ferrara, who is only a kid at this stage. You've got Francesco. Right How do Maldini plays in this tournament? Yeah, he must be seventeen years old. Yeah. He's 19. Carlo Ancelotti's playing for the Italians. You've got, everyone forgets that he was a footballer before he became a world class manager. You've done it down, you've Mancini. You've got Mancini, who's 23, and you've got Gianluca Vialli, who's 23 as well. Like, 
you've basically got the Italian squad set up for the next 10 to 15 years. You know what I mean? And there's, there's a lot of young players, which is very unlike an Italian side to go in there. And then you look at the Danish squad and you've got Michael Eldrup, you've got John Jensen, who we'll see Jesper Olsen. Uh, anyone who remembers Jesper Olsen from the 86 World Cup, he was, he was, he went off and played for United and everyone was thought it was going to be amazing. But we've got our own Moby in the squad. That's right. Big yeah. Um, one of the best passes of, of a football you've ever seen in your life, Jan Moore. That's right. Big, yeah. big Jan wasn't in the squad. He didn't Preben make it. He wasn't in the squad, no? No. no. Preben Elkier is in the squad. Preben Elkier is in the squad. Yeah. And Soren Lerbu is in the squad. And we've got Martin Alves. Michael is in the squad. He is. He doesn't play. Isn't it? Charles Rasmussen is the is, is the number one at this stage. And like, like, like you forget how old Schmeichel was when he signed for United because this exactly. is 1988, and he's 24. Yeah, he's not a youngster here, you know. And he's 24, and he's only got something like four or five caps at this stage as well. Yeah, yeah. It's like you, you just completely forget how old Schmeichel is when he signs for United because most people are 26 or 20. What? What? He signs in 92, doesn't he? So that's yeah. This is eight, 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 four. So eight, four years. Yeah. So he's, he's nearly 20. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Think about it. Well, yeah, it was a great Danish team because they'd come off the 86 World Cup and they really had a good tournament there. Again, you had Michael Laudrup who was developing into a, a superstar, right? an absolute superstar. He's playing for Juventus during this tournament. He really is a sort of a watch this space. This fella is going to be top draw. Michael Eldrup is 23, a great age. But he had, we spoke about Elkiar there. Elkiar played for Verona in Italy and they won their first title in Serie A in 84, 85. He was a huge player. Another player that he'd come runner up in the Ballon d'Or. He came toward in the Ballon d'Or. You know, these are names that might not be that well known, the likes of Elkiar, Belenov, but they were. They were winning individual awards, so they were really good players. You know, at yeah, the time, was, they were top, top draw. He was one of those players that, that, that I first remember being a big, tough centre forward. You know, yeah. self about elbows everywhere, but had a bit about him, technically. You know, he was one of those old-school centre forwards, but could play a little bit. Because this, I mean, I, I lived in Scandinavia, I lived in Norway, and the dynamic up there is... Uh, Norwegians and uh, Swedes are quite conservative, but Danes—they're almost like Italians. Their their mentality is, is is almost continental. So the the way they play their football, it always has to be a bit of swa- swagger, a little bit of flair. You'll always see a Danish player who's a classic number ten, and you have Eriksson, I suppose, now today, um, who who fulfills that role. But back then. Jesus, they, they, they had four or five players. And as you say, they had a... I mean, John Sievebeck was a decent fullback. They had players at top clubs, you know? Yeah, we had. So, the other side of this is that you've got um, Spain and Denmark have played in the semi-final of the 1994 European Championships as well, the 486. And West Germany had won, I think, the 1980 version of it. Right? Um and France hadn't qualified for 88, so they they were the ones that missed out on the on the teams that had played across the 80 to 80, 80, 80 version in terms of what it was. But the first game, you have Germany against Italy. Obviously, that's a huge game because it's being held in Germany. And again, it's a classic Italian Open to it. It's tight as hell. You've got Mancini scoring, and then um, <clears throat> you've got Andreas Bremer scoring a free kick. Um, and this is and, you know, the reason why he got the free kick in the first instance. Zenga had taken more than four steps at the ball. That's right, yeah, yeah, I've seen that earlier. Madness. Yeah. Then I had the steps, real. 
And like, like you were a keeper, Phil, so you would have remembered that was such a big thing. Like obviously you were, you guys are a bit older than me, but I remember as a kid, you know, watch your steps, you know, counting steps when you're about to take a kick out and all, you know. It's fellas, fellas roaring at the referee, steps, ref, steps, look at me, steps you're taking. Yeah, it was a huge thing it was. Um, so, but that that was that. So that's the force of the thing. If anyone wants to watch a decent game that doesn't involve Holland this, go back and watch Spain and Denmark because that's, a, a mad 3-2 free-flown festival of football um, the Spanish go 3-1 up um, Butcher Bueno scores an absolute batter of a goal yeah um, Laudrup had scored an equaliser after about 20 minutes um, and then with about 20 minutes to go I think Denmark scored again but they pushed like hell but they just can't get the equaliser and to be fair Zuby Zuretta makes a lot of good saves in this World Cup he was able to move at this stage he hadn't got rickets in his hips at, at this point yeah. in time so he wasn't more hadn't set in just yet yeah, yeah, his, his legs still functioned. Um, he hadn't borrowed his legs off Peter Shelton at this point. Yeah, yeah. Peter. Um, so, but, but it started to put the Danes up against the wall. They had to win their last two games to go through if they wanted to go through. Um, and essentially, we were looking at Spain and um, Germany being in, in pole position for coming out. In the next couple of games, then, the West Germans batter, battered the Danish team. And then they just dispatched the Spanish team to win. They beat Rudy Waller scores twice against them to, to, to secure top spot in the group. Um, and then was it Italy goes through alongside? Italy goes through, yeah. Yeah, so then it sets up, the semi-finals are set up. And this one I'm saying, it's an eight-team tournament, so it's absolutely perfect. So the top two teams come out and you're into your, straight into your semi-finals. So there's no messing around with quarter-finals and knockout stages and everything like that. So you've got Italy against Russia and you've got, oh, so not Russia, USSR, and you've got Holland against West Germany, which is just it's it's you know the way it's going to go. Always it's just <laughs> always pleasant, pleasant <laughs> football match. Mm-hmm. This, this is also going to set the scene for what happens in 1990 between West Germany and Holland as well, because there's there's more in this game. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so again, so. I don't know if most people know who are listening. I'm, I'm sure most uh, most ones do, but there is a classic rivalry between Netherlands and West Germany that's there for years. Like they are literally the old enemy of each other. Um, they hate each other in a footballing sense. Then there's there's often be more on the pitch and the stems. I think it might go back to the 50s or 60s or something in terms of what's yeah. there. Made in the 74 final. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's players that played in the 1974 final whose uh, whose parents were, you know, were killed in concentration camps. Or, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of that kind of still hangover going on. People forget yeah. how raw how raw Europe was still in the in the 70s. That you had sons of uh, of people, yeah. not grandsons or great grandsons. People actually knew the stories. They knew people connected with both sides. Fascinating. If you've ever read, I mean, uh, football against the enemy, really, really fascinating. A lot of the dust. We've Peter Shilton, who we spoke about, who was born in the forties. You know what I mean? So at this stage, it's not that long since the war. You know, but I think as well, you've also got um, the the rivalry between them. It was it was a ferocious rivalry. But at the time, if we go back to the seventies, when we said about the seventy four World Cup. You also had, like, I think Bayern Munich might have won three European Cups in a row around that. And then Ajax would have won three European Cups in a row, or in one or, or maybe two in a row, under Johan Cruyff, Linus Michaels as well. You know, it was a, a, they were the top dogs 
basically uh, for years around Europe these guys and it was a rivalry stemmed from that. But it's it's rivalry, and it's also the, the concept of, of tactics and style of play was a huge thing that went on between them. Well back to the game. So you've got you've got right um it was a really tight match. Niggly because obviously you can kick the legs off each other back then as well. So like you could actually hockey, hockey lads up into the air. Um, and 55 minutes in, there's a low time. Mateus scores a penalty after Klinsman goes over easily in the box. Really? What? That, that won't be the first time that that's said. Um, <laughs> yeah. And of course, that at that point then. Um, the Germans do think they're home and host this, right? They've got the home crowd behind them. There's no way they're going to miss this out, right? Um, 75th minute, Jürgen Kohler takes Van Basten down. And Van Basten, had, as we said, he scored a hat-trick at this point. He's emerged into this tournament. He is literally, he's he's now the most clinical centre-forward in it, and he's also the most dangerous centre-forward in it. Um, but who do you want to take a penalty for you at this point of it, in, in the semi-final? Only one. You hand the ball to the greatest set-piece set player in the in the ward at this point in time, which is Ronald Koeman. And, of course, kill as you like, not a bother dispatching it. Um, it was heading for extra time. And this is the slow drill pass. The slow drill pass, pass into Van Basten. Yeah. Who gets ahead of Kohler again. Um, I'm trying to remember the goal now. He beats... Throw Kohler and the goalkeeper to a ball, like a little a true ball that's played into him, and he gets it just nicks in ahead of him, and it's yeah, the nick to send it in, and I think it was it's a last minute winner for them, um, <clears throat> but there was absolute murder then at the final whistle. <laughs> <laughs> Strangely enough, <laughs> yeah, the Germans and the Dutch yeah, it went down really well. So obviously the. We're in Germany for for this World Cup, and after Ronald Koeman and Olaf Tan swap shorts, um, Koeman then turns to the fans and begins to rubbing his backside with Olaf Tan's jersey, which didn't go down too well, as you can imagine, with the German fans. Yeah, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> Absolute more, basically. Um, <laughs> Obviously, there was um, fences, fences and all still at matches at this stage. Otherwise, there could have been killings on the, on, on the pitch. Um, and this, as we said, this does lead into what was going to take place in 1990 because that that, that level of dislike and um, disrespect is, is maintained between the two squads, which are fairly unchanged when we get when they get to meet each other in, in Italian 90. Um, Kilman did apologise, but like, if you ever watch Ronald Kilman apologising, it's, it's, to say it's sincere would be a, um, yeah. wouldn't be a factual piece at all. Have um, you ever apologised for the red balls on the Christmas tree? No, no. He, no, no. Ronald has known, that, I mean, we, we work with a lot of Dutch people here, and they're nice people, but they, they say what they like, and they pride themselves on, no, this is what I think, and if you don't like it, you're the problem, not me. It did, and so that takes it into the final. And the other semi-final, we've got Italy taking on the USSR. Now, to be fair, lads, you could not have had a bigger, more overwhelming favourites than Italy to beat Russia here to get into the final against the Dutch, right? Um, and the Italians were, despite normal, they're actually very, very good in the semi-final, and they, but they miss, despite having Mancini, Viali, um, I can't I remember that back four that day, they'd Bergami, Freddy, Baresi, and Maldini. I know. 
and now it's like it's it's it's, it's unbelievable in terms of the quality that's there. Um, but they've Walter Zengen goal who's also about one hundred and six thousand years old at this stage, mm-hmm. right? Because they love they love an an aging goalkeeper in yeah. um, in Italy as well. Because they would have had um, Zoff Zoff yeah. In the eighty two was eighty two yeah. yeah it's the tournament they won in Spain yeah. absolutely justified by by winning it. Yeah. So and then you've got Zenga then who's um four hundred and six years old by the time this comes around. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah they 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 definitely they should have won this game but they didn't and then the the Soviets just as they had done in the group stage are fairly clinical in front of goal um the. Italy slaughtered days in a friendly before the tournament as well, I think, 4 yeah. or 5 nil, something like that. And, they, and that was played into the the narrative around, you know, ah, oh, well, look, Italy are in the final here because they spanked Russia before, or sorry, they spanked the Soviets before, and, you know, we'll take that as a given. didn't work out that way. But like the, the, the Russians were, were smart here. They basically kicked the shit out of the Italians, right? So they, they knew what had done and they decided that they they wore their arses off and they kicked the Italians all over the pitch that was there. But it paid off because they scored two goals in four minutes just after the second half. Um, and despite Franco Brady the, being the best the centre defender of all time, as everyone keeps said all the time, he was beaten for pace, which is well, when we were discussing the, the best players ever. Keith, remember we were having this conversation, would Franco Brazi be rated as highly nowadays because he did look to have a severe lack of pace when he was playing back then? Mm. Uh, you got to ask, as the game has gotten faster, would, would it's the same for any question when you look at these players yeah. previously. Um, and then the second one, it just it's it's a classic goal against the Italians in a, in in a, in the in international football thing where it's just a loopy shot that goes over the goalkeeper. We'll see that again in 1994, and we've seen it on a number of occasions. Um, which then takes obviously the US's heart to the fun, uh, and it's um, nobody expected it. So we we're back to essentially the group game, um, a replay of the group game between. Holland and the USSR, which had with the Soviet Union had won in the first time round. But we're going to see this game will always be characterised by the goal that Van Basten scores, right? Because it's outrageous. It truly is one of the um, amazing volleys that you're going to see between the control, the power, and the angle. That he shoots it up. Exactly. I've never seen anything like that. The greatest volley of all, yeah. definitely. I mean, yeah. y- y- as a centre forward, y- you're thinking to yourself, first of all, do I pull this down? Does, does players in the box route hold it is closing in? I think I get I get to the line and, and feed someone else in. To even conceive the ball is, forget about the technique. It's the amount of time that he doesn't have for the ball to come over his shoulder that impressed me the most about this goal. It's just okay. Here it comes, bang, catches it clean the factor of the best goalkeeper in the world at, at a zero angle. So if you look at the the amount of goal he has to aim at, it would be like, I don't know, a closed rail, the closed rail beside me in the room. That's the angle, that's how much he had against a tall goalkeeper. It's just the perfect volley. Ridiculous. Mm. What's forgotten though is that, um, so Ruth Hullet also scores if, if, if you go back, people forget that Ruth Hullet scores an absolute bullet header. header yeah. yeah, a great header. An iconic header when you look back at it. dreads everywhere. Yeah. The dreads are everywhere. He's yeah. hanging in the air. Bullet. It's it, absolutely magical. Do you know what, 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 what I always remember, though, is the jump after he scores. Does this yeah. tiny little skip that he puts after he scores? Mm-hmm. 
Van Dijk, Van Dijk does it now. Yeah. 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 He does exactly it's it's amazing to watch that. Um but he absolutely scores a bullet header. But the other bit that people forget about in this final is so it's two 0 to, to to Holland. Do you storm is a penalty? Yeah, my boy Bellinov yeah. digging him up about his ball on Darden and then he misses a penalty. <laughs> missed, it's it's a real case where it was all, the USSR seemed to freeze right at the wrong moment. Yeah. Whether they put so much into the Italian game, it's hard to know. But it's like it is just that moment in time where they lose their opportunity. But as, I'll go back to it, lads. This is uh, this was a feast of football, and it, it was great to see because they've come so close in '74 to winning the World Cup and were beaten by West Germany. And what would have been a total football final with Johan Cruyff, it actually was deserving that a team with the Van Basten, with Rijkaard, and with um, Cruyff, uh, not Cruyff, with Hollis, would win. European Championships for Ireland and coached by Renus Mikkels as well yeah there's, 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 a, there's a beauty that's in there to, to see them through to what it was it's the last tournament that none of the matches there was no scoreless draws in any of the matches and not a single one of the knockout games goes to extra time or penalties yeah just pure every, pure. Inter, every international tournament about this has them purely pure football pure quality and I ask you this, lads. I know football. I know we, 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 it sort of just rounds out this the whole debate that we're having tonight. But television has, leads to the expansion of these tournaments, right? Is there not now the argument that smaller tournaments like this should fit the model better for international football, where you could run a cup and almost a shield tournament, where you have like the the group winners go in. You have eight group winners in in Europe. They go in and play a two group, two match tournament, and then you could have the eight second place teams play a second tournament in a different city or a different country. If you know what I mean, a bit like the instead of yeah jamming them all into one tournament and just diluting the quality. And is that what they're trying to do with that Nations League in a sort of friendly? Uh, no, I, I think they're trying to they're trying to include everybody in the, in the, in in that. For me, that's not the way either. I'd agree with Phil. The problem is the world is too big now. There's too many countries, you know. There's too much, and you know. There's too, too, you know, too, just too too many people to cater for. It's it's a one it's one tragedy of of everyone having their independence. Is that you know you look at you you look back history now. The great question will be how on earth did the USSR not win a major tournament? How did that happen? You know, yeah. for well, they won the Euros, the first one in '64. Yeah, yeah. So, but how did they not win a World Cup? You know, how did the yeah. spoils with that guy and with the amount of investment that would have went into them? How on earth did they not manage to win a World Cup? But it's, but yeah, it's that's amazing. The problem. Like, too many. Too you many look countries. at Russia, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia would have been big, big countries in all these um, types of tournaments. And now, right, the Czechs only broke up into Czechs and Slovakia. But Yugoslavia broke up into about six different countries. You've got the Russians, the Soviet Union broke up into about, Jesus, 20 different yeah. countries, you know, and it's, it's, it's a shame, you know, the well, powerhouse, powerhouse countries when we were all young. Yeah, in, in reality, the only team to have emerged from the breakup of the old Eastern Bloc and the Soviet, Soviet Union is Croatia. They're the only ones yeah. who have gone close. Czech yeah. Republic maybe in '96, but that was lightning yeah. in a bottle, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that was just their golden generation. I think though, 90, in '92, I think Yugoslavia would have won that tournament. To be quite honest with you, that that uh, that was a poor European Championships, though, um, yeah. in Sweden, I think. Well, the, 
we can, we can talk about that next week. Don't yeah. be jumping ahead of yourself. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a point actually about about European Championships. The amount of um, single winners are, you know, Spain had won the Euros in '64, and it was the first, the only tournament he'd won up until 2008. Wasn't it? They won the 08 Euros. You had France had won the Euros. You had um, Holland had won this Euros. Czechoslovakia won the Euros. Russia won. The Soviet Union won the Euros. They'd all won. You know, won. There wasn't like Germany were dominating or Italy were dominating. It was. It was all spread around and even continues into the '92 was a surprise winner. Uh, 2004 is it when or 2000 when. Greece winning, yeah. you know, there's, there's been it's it's a tournament that's not like it doesn't always go the way you'd expect it to. I think there's a major one fact. Yeah. I'll just leave this one fact on on the Euros from the ticket as well. What remember? No South American side is yet to the European <laughs> on European soil. Yeah. <laughs> Final thought as well: the football in this tournament, the Adidas Tango, another thing. Uh, the greatest football ever. I think I think if 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 RT is listening out there, if you could please replay the whole Euro ATA tournament over the next week because it's not that many. Matches. Not that many, yeah, not that many. It would be it would be a great thing for us all to look back on and watch the Adidas and slash Umbro slash Homo kit slash now Nike. Oh, Does Nike make shit? Yeah. If for nothing no, else, yeah, to see how good Paul McGraw was, you know, to actually remember, yeah. you know, and if we can have one request. If they can cut out all the back passes, that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah, because then you could play it in an hour. Minutes. Right. Um, okay. Peace, Keith. Thank you very much. That's been a great sort of rewind on the 1988 European Championships. And um, that has been the club. That was brought to you by the Pitchboard app. Um, Gav is back tomorrow night with something, probably something to do with somebody else's 11 or something. And Keith, I'm sure, will be on it. Because Keith, Keith, yeah, Keith is on everything now. Yeah, Keith's yeah. moved into Gav's mic. He's <laughs> in his, in his... Um, um, I'll be back next week, probably, on the Tuesday, on Monday, the Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday club. Um, I might pop into one of the shows during the week if I've got nothing else on as well, um, and uh, if, if, if my missus lets me, um, basically. So that's it. That's a wrap. I've been your host, Phil Casey. Good night. God bless. Lockdown is almost over. Attention Social Security and SSI recipients. If you did not receive an economic impact payment for your eligible spouse or dependents, you may need to file a 2020 tax return with the IRS and claim the recovery rebate credit. Go to ssa.gov EIP to see if you need to file a tax return and if eligible for other refundable tax credits, like the child tax credit. That's ssa.gov EIP. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. This message is sponsored by Amazon. I want to get back to kissing the cheeks of my grandbabies, making Sunday dinner with a house full of family and lots of laughs. <laughs> COVID-19 has changed how we live and how we feel, but now there are vaccines. It's okay to have questions. Now get the facts. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccines. It's up to you. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Sports Social Podcast Network.